My message today um, is entitled, The Beauty of Brokenness. The Beauty of Brokenness. And it was uh, very largely inspired by our elder meeting on Tuesday night. Um, the man of the board and I and Dan and Rob got together uh, at the start of the meeting and, and we had uh, a really wonderful time of prayer. We had a time of prayer, a time of just going to the Lord, and I just sensed in that initial moments of that meeting that we were all very broken before the Lord, that we were very humble and approaching Him with brokenness. And so as I left that meeting, uh, I had still been undecided on what to preach on today, and I went home and tried to sort through some passages with respect to brokenness. And I landed on the one that we're going to see today in Luke chapter 18. If if you want, you can begin to turn there. The beauty of brokenness, Luke chapter 18. Brokenness. It happens when a parent outlives their children. It happens when a woman says goodbye to her husband leaving for war. It happens when the dad who has just lost his job begins to wonder, how am I going to supply for my family? In a state of brokenness, we feel completely helpless. We feel completely alone. We feel as if there's no hope. Uh, my wife and I, we were talking about this topic, and I hesitate. I hesitated early on to want to share this because it was such a private moment for the two of us. But I'm going to share it anyway. And she said I'd cry, and I said, "No, nah, I'm too tough. I won't cry." When we got pregnant, we were so excited. We were thrilled to death. It took it took some time. We we didn't get pregnant right away. And uh, we were so excited, we went home and told our folks and, and explained to them that, you know, we were going to have a baby, and they were so excited for us. But we hesitated to tell everybody else, and everybody asked us why, and we said, well, there's been a history of miscarriages in our family. Not, not just a history, a long history of miscarriages. In fact, on Casey's side of the family, on her, on her, on her dad's side of the family, rather, almost every woman loses the first baby. And so we were very hesitant to shout out, hey, we're pregnant. Sure enough, a few weeks into our pregnancy, we got a big scare. There was a period of time, it happened in an evening time where we were, you know, the doctor's office was close and we could sense that there was something wrong, that there was something terribly wrong with the pregnancy. And in that moment, we were just, in tears. We were broken. We were on our knees and just asking God, God, please, we don't know what to do. We don't know where to turn. Doctor's office is closed. Sure, we could go to a hospital, but our physician had said, just wait till morning and come in and see me. And we just cried out all night, saying, Lord, we are so, so broken. That night was an awful night. It was a terrible night. 
one of the worst nights of my life. I thought that the baby that we were going to have was now gone. But in periods of brokenness, in times in which you and I are most helpless, that is the time that God seems to work the most mightily. And sure enough, the next day, God answered our prayers. We walk into the office. The doctor inspects my wife and and goes through some procedures and turns out that what was occurring was quite normal, as a matter of fact. That it was not out of the norm what was happening in the pregnancy and that we could rest assured that the baby was going to be fine. And we were so relieved. That moment of brokenness turned into a glorious moment in which we thanked God for his provision, for his faithfulness. In Luke chapter 18, we're going to be looking at a story of brokenness. We're going to see in this story a moment in two men's lives when they walk up to the steps of the temple, they enter through the gates, and they both begin a prayer. One man's prayer is a prayer of pride, a prayer of arrogance, a prayer of self-sufficiency. And another man's prayer is a prayer of brokenness, a prayer of utter dependence and reliance on Christ. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Let's read it through together. And he, Jesus, spoke this parable to some who trusted in in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to pray. Excuse me. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to understand your word this morning as we read about a story of brokenness. Help us to pay close heed to the attitude and the disposition and the prayer of this tax collector. Help us to learn from his ways, learn from your approval of him, and that we might become more like him. In Christ's name, amen. Here we are, Luke chapter 18, and this is an interesting piece of scripture because it's placed in a particular spot in the New Testament in which Luke is beginning to show that entrance into the kingdom, that favor with God, 
that if you want to be exalted, if you want to be honored, more often than not, you're going to be coming from a place of deficiency. Of deficiency. Just a few stories earlier, Luke gives the uh, parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is a little is a beggar, and yet Lazarus is the one who is lifted up at the end of the story. The beggar, one of deficiency, is lifted up. A little bit later on, uh, just before this story, we see a widow, a poor widow, who is lifted up and raised up as a result of her persistent prayer. Then we come to this story that we see today. And we're going to look at a man, a tax collector, who by that culture and that society was quite deficient. And we're going to see him raised up in just a minute. Just after this, little children are raised up in the next story. So we see again and again and again what Luke is trying to do in arranging this portion of his gospel is he's trying to begin to impress upon our hearts that God takes favor on those who are deficient. God takes favor on those who approach Him from a position of inferiority. Now, as we begin to interpret this text, I want to skip verse 9. I want to skip verse 9 for now. We're going to come back to it. Verse 9 is, is, uh, is going to be helpful a little bit later on, but I want us to read the story and hear the story as the hearers of Jesus would have heard it. So Jesus walks up to the people, to the multitudes, and He says this in verse 10. Two men went up to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Well, let's take a look at these two individuals. In first century Judaism, we all know what a Pharisee was, right? This was a a member of the religious aristocracy of Israel. Um, You and I, we hear the word Pharisee and immediately we think, okay, these are the hypocrites. Well, Get rid of that impression. Because the hearers of this story don't have that impression. In fact, when they look at the Pharisees, they think holy men. When they look at the Pharisees, they think the great epitome of representatives of God. When the common men of first century Judaism look at the Pharisees, they think these are the guys I am supposed to emulate. Now look at the other man, a tax collector. First century Judaism, a tax collector was one, a Jew from his own people who would collect taxes on behalf of the Roman government. More often than not for profit, Rome would contract these men to go around and to harass all kinds of people, to take from them what was not rightfully theirs. Herod the Great, We all know Herod, he uh, used these taxes to finance not only temple improvements, which was a nice gesture, but in the end, he also financed his own palaces and his own pagan temples with Jewish taxes. The tax collector in this story is the one who is despised by the people. The tax collector in this story is the one that when they hear, oh, it's a Pharisee and a tax collector, I know who the good guy is here. It's the Pharisee. That is their anticipation. The people hearing this story. When Jesus said two men went up to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector, they immediately know in their hearts 
and anticipate in their hearts that the Pharisee will be the one that is honored in the story. But as you and I know, Jesus loves to do a little switcheroo. Jesus loves to highlight the people who come from positions of inferiority. And in this story, he's going to highlight the example of the dreaded tax collector. Take a look at verse 11. The Pharisee stood. So now we come to the point in time where the Pharisee is going to begin to pray in the temple. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Some word explanations here. You'll notice in yellow, I've given you some words to, to, to look at, and maybe you want to underline them in your Bibles because it's helpful to know these, these little things. Um, go ahead and drop back one if you could. Oh, one more. That's all right. We are on number. There we go. There we go. Okay. Extortioners. Right there, that, that's actually an adjective. It means ravenous. But in, 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 in this period of time, those that were considered ravenous were the ones that were stealing from, from widows and stealing from the people. And so it's, it's, it's their best guess that these were kind of modern-day extortioners. These were people that would swindle money out of people. And, uh, and take from those that did not have much. So the Pharisee says, I'm not like one of those. Uh, this, when he says, I'm not like this tax collector, that this there is used quite negatively. Elsewhere, Luke uses the word this in a derogatory meaning. And he's saying, and at the culmination of all the things that I'm not like, I'm certainly not like this tax collector. Also, possess in verse 12. Uh, that actually carries more of the weight of to gain or to acquire rather than to possess. And so uh, we might say that the Pharisee tithes of everything that he gains. We're going to see what that means in just a second. He tithes of everything that he gains. Well, what is the nature of his prayer? Let's break it down. He is thanking God that, number one, he is not like other men. He is not like other men. In particular, number two, he thanks God that he is not like the ravenous extortioners, the unrighteous or the unjust, or adulterers. So he lists three kinds of people that he himself distances himself from. And three, most specifically, most specifically, he thanks God that he is not like the tax collector standing alone in the corner of the temple area. Now, it's, it's a little bit ironic that he says, I thank you, God, for these things, don't you think? He's thanking God that he is not like other men. That should strike us as a little bit odd. And, and Jesus' hearers are beginning to think, wow, that's, that's, that's a little bit of a different kind of statement to make. Also unrelated to his gratefulness of God, the Pharisee goes on to explain some of the reasons why he is unlike the other holy, unholy members of society. Number one, he fasts twice a week. He fasts twice a week. 
Now, the Pharisees were notorious for additional fasting, if you will. In fact, in the Old Testament law, we know and can be assured of the fact that fasting was actually only strictly supposed to be done on the Day of Atonement. Later on in Esther, we find some more fasts that were supposed to be in commemoration of the Days of Purim. And in Zechariah, you find some additional fasts that are prescribed, but not commanded. Commanded fasts in the Old Testament, you turn to Leviticus 16, you look at the Day of Atonement. That is the only commanded fast in the Old Testament in the way of first century Judaism. And so it's quite interesting that this man fasts twice a week. And we know that the Pharisees did this because look at a different section here. Luke, the next uh, verse here, Luke chapter 5, verse 33. Then they, the Pharisees, said to him, Jesus, why did the disciples of John fast often and make prayers and likewise those of the Pharisees, us, but yours eat and drink? So we know from this statement that the Pharisees were very accustomed to repeated fasts. That they enjoyed, if you will, afflicting their bodies repeatedly to prove their piety. It's interesting, too, I, I, just as an aside, some of you might be interested in this, the Talmud, which is the Jewish compilation of their oral law and the commentary on their oral law. In the Talmud, which is used today in, 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 uh, in, in the temple, uh, they actually prescribe Monday and Thursday as the two days a week of fasting, Monday and Thursday. So you will note if you go to Israel, the most pious Jews will not eat from sunrise to sundown Monday and Thursday. So this tradition is carrying over even till the 21st century. Okay, so why is he unlike the other unholy members of society? Number one, he fasts twice a week. Number two, he gives tithes of all that he gains or acquires. Well, what does this mean? Well, we have a little hint of what this means in Matthew. Look at the next verse. Matthew, chapter 23, verse 23. Woe to you, Jesus is saying, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise... Oh, boy, I'm going to butcher that word. Anis. Thank you, Glenn. And, and cumin. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. I'm not a horticulturalist. I really didn't pay attention to what those herbs were. Nonetheless, we see here what's going on. Jesus is ridiculing, mocking the Pharisees because they tithe even the smallest herbs out of their garden. They tithe as an example of their piety. They are taking the letter of the law so seriously and bringing their tithes so that everyone can see them. Oh, look, everything that I gain, even the smallest herbs from my garden, I bring before the Lord. What a great man I am. This is the attitude of the Pharisee. He thanks God he thanks God that he's better than the common men. He thanks God that he's better than extortioners, unrighteous, adulterers. He's certainly better than this tax collector. How does he know? Well, he fasts. No, no, not just on the Day of Atonement. This man, he fasts two times a week, Mondays and Thursdays. 
And he gives. No, no, he doesn't just give a tenth of his income. But a tenth of every gain that he receives, even the smallest herbs coming out of my garden. One, uh, one commentator wrote, God was very fortunate to have someone like this. <laughs> that is the attitude. That really encapsulates it. I love that quote. Who was that? Smart guy here. R.H. Stein. I don't know him. Nonetheless, God is, boy, God is sure lucky that this man's in town, isn't he? That is the attitude of this Pharisee. God, you're blessed because of me. I'm a pretty good guy. Here's perhaps an even more, uh, an even more encapsulating quote about what we're seeing here. John Noland says, excuse me, John Noland says this, We are not warmed by the love of God when we are in the presence of this upright and apparently godly man. When we examine this man closely, we see a man whose apparent love for God is not at the same time a heart of compassion for his fellows. Righteousness for him drives him far away from others. It builds no bonds to those with whom he shares life in Palestine. Well might the Pharisee thank God for his advantages. They were real enough, but along with them comes responsibility. If grace does not lead to grace, it turns out not to have been grace at all. While I might disagree with that final statement, I think his point rings true. If God has given us advantage, if God has bestowed on you and I blessing, we are not to take those blessings and pretend like we had something to do with it. Plain and simple. When God blesses you with a gift, when God blesses you with money, Maybe you're successful in business. When God blesses you with children or with a nice home, all of these things, you need to look back and say, God, thank you. I am so dependent on you for good things. And it's because of you that I have what I have today. It certainly isn't because of me. And now we come to the tax collector. If a first century Jewish audience was beginning to sense an uneasiness in the manner in which the Pharisee prayed, they would be anticipating downright disgust in the forthcoming prayer of the tax collector. Sure, the Pharisee may have been a tad boastful, but his righteousness will shine through once we hear the words of this heathen. That was their attitude. But Jesus has an interesting prayer on the lips of the tax collector. Look at verse 13. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Some more color here for us. Little color commentary. Uh, notice standing. Okay. On the one hand, we have the Pharisee who stood, most presumably, most presumably in the center of the temple area. That he stood where all could see him. 
And though he was praying with himself, it was very evident that this Pharisee was trying to attract some attention for his prayer. The tax collector, in con- by contrast, is standing afar off. And as I speculate, somewhere in the corner of the temple area. He is ashamed. He's ashamed of his work. He's ashamed of the woman he just cheated that day. He's ashamed of the money sack in his hand. And so he's standing off in the corner of the temple. Beat his breast. He beat his breast. Now, this is really unique. The beating of the breast in the ancient Near East was most likely done as an act of mourning for death. More often than not, when someone would beat their breast, or it was said that someone had beaten their breast, it was because they were in mourning for someone who had died. Jesus, when his, on His death and resurrection, when the centurion had realized what they had done, when the people had realized who they had crucified, you know what it says? It says they beat their breasts. This is the only other time of it occurring in the New Testament. You can find that in Luke 23:48. They beat their breasts when they realized who they had crucified. By location, in the corner of the temple, and by his posture, by his beating of the breast, we can tell that this tax collector is signaling to us his sense of unworthiness before God. His sense of helplessness. His brokenness before God. But we need to spend some time in his prayer. And this is going to take the, the majority of the rest of our sermon here because his prayer is quite unique. We need to spend some time in this. Very Very interesting prayer coming off the lips of this man. He says this in the New King James, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Literally translated, I have a literal translation up there for you on the next slide. It says this at the bottom, God, be propitiated to me, the sinner. You see a slightly different word there. And it has a substantial different meaning than the word mercy that we might see in our New King James. God, be propitiated to me, the sinner, not a sinner. He's referring to himself as perhaps a chief of sinners, one of the greatest sinners. And he's asking God to do something. Actually, he's asking God to be something, rather. He's asking God to be propitiated. Boy, that's a tough word. What does it mean to be propitiated? In ancient Greek, the word propitiation, to to be propitiated, a verb, elaskomai, it means to appease a god, and I'm saying a god because I'm talking of the ancient Greek gods, it means to appease a god who is angry, who is wrathful toward someone's wrongdoing. To appease a god over someone's wrongdoing. To make reconciliation, more often than not, by a sacrifice. To appease a God. In Christian context, we're going to see this 
very clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. But hear me out first. The tax collector is not asking God to be merciful and simply ignore the hedonistic greed that has characterized his entire life. He's not asking God to ignore it. He's not asking God to just look past it. Quite the contrary. He's asking God to focus in on it. He's asking God to recognize what he greatly recognizes, his own sinfulness. As a Jew, he knows that a perfect and holy God cannot simply ignore sin. The wages of sin is death. As a Jew, this tax collector knows that the only means by which he can be forgiven of his sins and receive divine favor is to have God propitiated, that is, appeased of his wrath towards sin. Such appeasement comes time and time again when we look at the Old Testament. It's an ongoing process in the Old Testament, this propitiation. We can point to numerous occasions in which the people of Israel sin, turn to God in brokenness, offer a sacrifice upon the altar as a symbol of their brokenness, and God relents from judgment. We see that time and time and time again. Propitiation in the Old Testament. An ongoing act. Even the Ninevites in Jonah, a pagan group, when they repented of their sin, God relented from the judgment that He was going to give them. At least for a time. In the case of the Jews... Prior to the cross of Christ, which is the setting of this story, prior to the cross, God's wrath for sin was appeased when his people in sincere remorse would bring their gifts to the altar, their lambs or their bulls, and burn them as a sacrifice for sin. This is why many scholars, when they look at Luke 18, many scholars speculate that this tax collector had already offered a gift on the altar before his prayer. Why do they speculate that? Because for him to ask God to be propitiated, for him to ask God to be appeased of his wrath, it would have been very customary for him to have previously given a sacrifice upon the altar in the temple. No good Jew would implore God to be propitiated or appeased toward the sinner unless that sinner had offered the Lord a contrite heart and an acceptable burnt offering. And Lewis Sperry Chafer, one of the great Dallas men of old, writes this of propitiation. He says this, By the use of the word propitiation, the publican or tax collector asks God to cover his sins in such a way as to dispose of them, yet at the same time to do this in a way that would protect his own holiness from complicity or involvement with his sins. If the publican did as Jews were accustomed to do in his day when they went into the temple to pray, he left a sacrifice at the altar. What he prayed was strictly proper for a Jew of his time to pray under those circumstances. Strictly proper. 
Again, to summarize, the tax collector is not asking God to be merciful to him. There is a distinction. He's not asking God to ignore. Instead, he is asking God to be propitiated, to be appeased by his sacrifice and by his contrite heart. What about the New Testament understanding of propitiation? When we look at the New Testament, we can't help but look forward to the propitiation that is found in Jesus Christ. And contrary to the Old Testament, in which propitiation, sacrifice, remorse for sin was something done repeatedly, sacrificed repeatedly so that God could be appeased, so that they could be in right fellowship with God, and so on, in the New Testament... Following the cross of Christ, we see something different. We see Jesus' final and perfect propitiation. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the noun form of the verb we're reading in Luke 18. 1 John 2.2 2. And He Himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The words that you see in yellow, propitiation, are the noun forms of the same verb you see in Luke 18. John is carrying on Jesus' thought here and helping us to understand what it means to, be, to have propitiation, to have God appeased in the New Testament. Through the death of Christ, God has been propitiated. He's been appeased of our sin. And thus, the pathway has been cleared for our justification through faith in Jesus. The pathway has been cleared. Notice I say cleared. I don't say that it's been automatic. Just because God is propitiated, just because God is appeased, does not mean that this tax collector all of a sudden was saved. Although I do believe he was saved. We're going to see that in verse 14. But it, had, it, it did not have to do strictly with the propitiation that he was asking of God. It had to do rather with the faith of this tax collector, which is unseen in the text, but which I believe very strongly is there. Propitiation does not save us. Propitiation does not save us. Faith in Christ brings us justification. Faith in Christ brings us eternal life. Nevertheless, God must be propitiated for our sin. Schaefer also notes, I was, I was reading a little bit further, he says, you know what, this prayer is actually not the greatest prayer for a New Testament believer to make. He says, it would be improper for me to ask God to be appeased of my sin when it's already been done in the person of Jesus Christ. He says this tax collector's prayer, while admirable and while proper in the context of being prior to the cross of Christ, he says this is not a New Testament prayer. Propitiation has been done. It's been completed in Jesus Christ. And you and I no longer need to turn to God and ask Him to be appeased of His wrath because in His Son, He has been finally appeased. His holiness has been preserved. And when you and I look at Jesus Christ today, we are seeing the substitute, the perfect Lamb, upon the altar, appeasing God for our sin.
some contrasts as we return to the text at hand. In contrast to the Pharisee, in contrast to the Pharisee, look at the prayer of the tax collector. The tax collector did not attempt to compare his own works to that of other men to substantiate his own righteousness. He knew he was a sinner, the sinner. Number two, the tax collector did not find satisfaction in his own works, but asked that God be propitiated, that God be appeased for his sin through his contrite heart and acceptable sacrifice. It's interesting, on the contrary, the the Pharisee, he didn't have any petition. He didn't have any request of God. He doesn't petition God because he doesn't believe he needs anything from God. In so doing, the Pharisee's prayer becomes a dialogue between superiors. Not a dialogue between an inferior being and a perfect and holy God. Coming to the culmination, verse 14. What are we seeing now? Jesus makes a comment about the destiny of this tax collector. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Briefly look at went down and went up. They went up to the temple and as they came down, there was something different. They went up as two very distinct men. The Pharisee esteemed in the eyes of men. The tax collector, shameful. That's when they went up. And when they went down, to their homes, all of a sudden, a little switcheroo. The tax collector is the one justified. The Pharisee is left. What does it mean that he went home justified? I, I wrestled with this a lot because we cannot, you and I cannot just automatically say, well, that means saved. That means saved. Justified. Saved. Not, not necessarily the case. In the New Testament, justified very often can mean that he had a good standing before men. Uh, the Bible speaks of wisdom being justified. There's, there's a number of contexts in which justified does not necessarily mean eternal salvation. However, in this context, I believe it does mean that. I believe the evidence is overwhelming that in fact this is the justification that comes through faith. And in this man's case, through faith in the hope of the Redeemer of Israel, the Messiah. Luke uses the word justified six times in his gospel. Um, actually, let, let, me, let me skip on over here. I, I want to give you the reasons why. Why do I believe this instance of justification means eternally saved? There's, there's three reasons. Number one is this. Subsequent passages, previous, excuse me, following passages that come after this, notice what we see as we talked about earlier. The children... The children, which is the very next story, the children are justified. They're the ones given the kingdom of God, of the kingdom of God. Following that, the rich young ruler is excluded from the kingdom, excluded from justification, because he trusts in riches and does not have faith in the God of Israel and in his Messiah. Finally, as we look even further, Zacchaeus, a tax collector, chapter 19, which many scholars believe that what we see in chapter 18 was written so that you and I can look at chapter 19 and see what's happening in the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, at the end of that story, 
Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Salvation has come to this house. And by that he meant eternal salvation. But, um, excuse me, finally, the, the best reason I can give you why I believe this means that he was eternally saved is found in Romans 3. And this is, this is fun. Take a look at Romans 3, verses 20 to 28. The Apostle Paul is commenting... I'm very convinced that he is commenting on this very story, that he has read this story of Luke's, that he has dialogued with Luke about it and about what Jesus did in this particular situation. And as Luke is writing the story, Paul is also theologizing and he's categorizing it and he's helping you and I to understand it very clearly what is happening. Paul and Luke are working hand in hand here and we're going to see it very clearly. Look at the color I'm going to show you here. First, in yellow, the deeds of the law. Paul begins and ends this passage with the deeds of the law. And let's, let's read it together. I've, I've split it up a little bit, but kept it in context for us. Paul says this, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at this present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Deeds of the law, start and end of this sequence in Paul. What do you see in Luke? You see the Pharisee in verse 12? 12. Trying, attempt, excuse me, verse 13. No, verse 12. Sorry, I'm all over the place. Is it verse 12? There we go. The Pharisee is using the deeds of the law as an indication of his righteousness. Paul says, no, no, no. The deeds of the law, not going to get your righteousness. The deeds of the law are not going to get you justification before God. Look at the second word that Paul uses. Next up. Whoa, look at that. Propitiation. Didn't we just see that in the story in Luke 18? Propitiation. God be propitiated to me. That's the prayer of the tax collector. He's saying, God, be appeased. And now Paul is carrying that thought into what he's saying here in Romans 3. And he's saying, and now propitiation has been finally accomplished. It's not by the deeds. It's because God has been propitiated. And finally, look at this next one. Justified. We have been justified. How? Not by the deeds of the law. Not even by propitiation, although it's required. God needs to be propitiated. But we have been justified. How does it say in Romans 3? Through faith, through faith, through faith. Why do I speculate that the tax collector was justified? That means eternally saved. Because Paul is using the same three themes here in Romans 3. Using the same three concepts. And pounding it home for you and I to understand very clearly what is the theology behind this passage. The tax collector was justified, not because he asked God to be propitiated, although that was honorable 
and admirable and worthy of a person prior to the cross of Christ. He was justified because in so doing, he was expressing faith. Faith in the Redeemer of Israel. Faith, hope, confidence in the coming Messiah of Yahweh. The tax collector went home justified. Luke and Paul go hand in hand. The parable in Luke 18 reveals that the Paul that Paul's teaching on justification by faith is perfectly in line with what Jesus had been saying all along. It's very unlikely that Paul would have thought up this word justification, justified. He's using it because Jesus used it. He's using it because Jesus taught it. And he's helping you and I to understand it through Romans 3. As a final interesting note, take a look back at our passage in Luke. Look at the next slide. We see, um, next slide, sorry. At the top, look at that. Verse 9, which we skipped over earlier. It said that the, excuse me, it said that, and he, Jesus, spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Guess what? That's the noun form of justification. Same word. He's saying, you think that you're secure? You think that you have divine favor? You think that God is pleased with you because of your deeds? I tell you, it is this lowly tax collector that walks away justified and not you. Finally, verse 14. Here we come. Culmination. We've seen this before in the New Testament. And uh, very fitting. Very fitting ending for Jesus in this story. He says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I don't like to read much into that. I think it's self-explanatory. The person who approaches God humbly, the person who is broken, the person who is utterly dependent upon God for His sufficiency, thankful to God for His blessings, in utter recognition of His own inferiority, that is the person time and time and time again that God lifts up that He exalts. That in the end of days, when you and I pass from this earth and go on to the next life, we will see that exaltation based on our level of humility and dependence and reliance on Christ in the here and now. And the tax collector saw within his life, broken over his sin, over his greed, over the robbery, and the theft coming out of his life. This man had a contrite heart and an acceptable sacrifice. God was pleased with him. Recognized his faith. Recognized his deep plea for God to be appeased. And God honored this tax collector. The broken man is exalted. How do we apply this? You know, maybe this has been a little... Maybe it's been a little heavy. Propitiation, all that talk, it's, it's tough to get our, our minds around. 
And especially since we said that we can't even say this prayer here in the New Testament because God has been propitiated. He has been appeased. So what can you and I learn from this today? Well, I give you this. God is pleased. God is pleased and uses us to a greater capacity. He exalts. He uses us greater when we experience brokenness from sin. And I would add to that brokenness from our own understanding of being inferior toward Him. When we reckon ourselves as utterly inferior to a holy God. I would just ask right now, and I'm going to ask you to spend one minute. Spend one minute in prayer, and then I'll close this in prayer. Spend one minute alone, and I want you to, to wrap your minds around this concept of brokenness. That you and I, if we, have, if we have sin, or if we are unduly prideful from our own life standing, whatever it is, if we're, if we're thrilled with our own giftedness, Whatever it is, 